Hello, and welcome back to The Hopeless Romantic. I'm Austin Chant. I'm Amanda Jean. First off, I'd like to say we are joined today by KJ Charles. Um, welcome, KJ, and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. It's a delight to be here. Awesome. Yeah, so when we uh, first thought of having you on the, on the podcast, the first thing we both thought of was talking about uh, historical research, because you write a lot of historical romance, you've written some historical fantasy, um, your books are beautifully researched, they have so much really cool detail. Um, and the first question I wanted to ask was, how do you get that sort of comprehensive research done for a time period, uh, a place, a way of speaking? Um, because I know something that I have a hard time with is anytime I um, start researching a period that I'm not familiar with, I don't really know where to, I don't even really know where to begin to feel like I have a comprehensive knowledge to write in. You know, I can, I can look for details as they come up, like, oh, what should the bathrooms be like? But then that just makes me wonder what kinds of details am I missing or not thinking about? And I feel Absolutely. like constantly scrambling to try to figure out what the setting is like? It's a really good question. And in some respects, the answer is it's kind of a con trick because, of course, nobody can know. Nobody yeah. can be completely immersed in a period. So part of what you're trying to do is give the details that sort of carry the reader in and give a kind of a sheen, a, a sort of impressionistic picture, if you see what I mean. So mm -hmm. you're sketching in the details because, of course, nobody, you know, we're here for the romance. Nobody actually wants to read the great big filled in. Yeah, I could re write a treatise at the moment on <laughs> Regency politics, 1819 to 1820, but really nobody's going to want that. So I guess, I guess, I mean, for me, what I do when it's a period I'm not really familiar with, I try and read novels that are set, that, that were written at that time, not ones that are set in that time, but ones that were written then, because you can just get a little bit more into the mindset. So that's often quite a useful thing to do. And that's why I write Victorian so much, because I've read a huge amount of Victorian fiction. And if you're reading something that's written at the time, you can, you can place, place yourself in the author's head. Um, beyond that, there are some absolutely fantastic... There's a lot of authors, mostly, I will say, female historians, who are very much concentrating on daily life and domestic detail rather than the sort of big battles and histories and politics sort of history. And those are really great places to start for any particular period. Uh, there's a wonderful book about Georgian London into the streets that has literally just gone through every area of London and talked about what it was like and gives you a sense of what it smelt like and what it felt like and what people were wearing and where they went to party and where they went to drink. And, you know, you can, you can just build up a kind of solid framework that way I think but yeah it is a huge amount of reading I mean I did I had a bookshelf of about 12 things of the Regency trilogy I've just finished uh, all of which I was constantly consulting yeah I can imagine it, it really really comes through in your work and that sounds that book in particular sounds really good was that a, a book you were talking about the, it's, the... Uh, that's my Society of Gentlemen trilogy. The um, second one just came out in December. Oh, oh so you mean oh, the, um, the yeah, research yeah. Oh, trust me, we're familiar with the Society of Gentlemen. <laughs> 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 no, the, yeah, the, um, the research is called, I'm, I'm not actually in my study at the moment, uh, it's, uh, it's called Georgian London Into the Streets. And if you want a good Regency guide, it's to, to London in that period. It's excellent. 
I've got a huge library now. I've, I mean, I've got a book specifically on the Cato Street Conspiracy, which is actually the only book ever written on the Cato Street Conspiracy, oh, wow. as far as I can tell. But it's pretty much got an account of the entire trial, which I was just dependent on. And then you, I actually find you really have to go down the byways. So I had to get, um, you know, a secondhand copy of a book about Regency radicals and pornographers and revolutionaries <laughs> written about 30 years ago, academic text, and it took about six weeks to track down because that was just the only thing I could get hold of. And then, of course, you go through these and you read and you read and then you boil it down and it comes up to about two sentences in the finished book. Yeah, yeah. But the information, you know, everything, I think I, the way I look at it is that everything you've learned sort of soaks in and then it sort of seeps out into your writing rather than being and as he passed by and he noted the famous printer William Grant or whoever <laughs> you've got to be soaked in it I think and then it, and then and then you feel convincing when the author's soaked in it she doesn't have to say that much it just feels convincing to the reader because you can tell they're not winging it Does yeah that make sense? yeah absolutely I that makes me curious do you do a period of research before you start writing or do you research as you go both both um, yeah. it sort of depends I mean with Victorian you know with my fantasy world my fantasy series I'm obviously you know it's my universe and I'll do what I want <laughs> I've got the Victorian trilogy coming up next and I'm setting it in 1874 I think and you know I'm I'm not going to do any specific I've got a couple of specific points but I'm not going to do any general pre-research because that was just my period um, whereas for the Regency one, I spent a lot of time reading about the Regency, you know, sort of actual history and particularly the political history, which is a thing that very often doesn't get covered in romance and actually what was going on at the time, which was, uh, it was, it was just very interesting. It's a very interesting period. And I'd like to see more people sort of getting into the politics because it was so aggressive and so conf confrontational and so difficult. And it's got so much resonance for now. Yeah. Which I think is an exciting bit. Well, it's, it's funny to me how, in many ways, the queer romance genre doesn't mimic the um, sort of straight romance genre in terms of there's a huge subgenre of straight romance that's strictly historical. And I would say it's more sidelined in queer romance. Obviously, contemporary is the winner of the day, but you don't find like the sprawling historical queer romance books that I, frankly, am desperate for. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, well, I suppose partly is, of course, I mean, I see so many people say, yeah, I don't like reading historical queer romance because it's going to be depressing. And for mm. obvious reasons, you know, it's uh, because you, you very often think, oh, well, the, you know what the conflict's going to be. It's going to be they're about to get hanged for this. Although, you know, in fact, that's, you know, it depends on the historical period and the setting. But it doesn't have to be what it's about. It really doesn't. And it's not the what the one thing that I want to write about. But, yeah, but I... I, I am sorry that we don't get more historical because, you know, I love historicals. I want to see loads more. And there's there, there are some people doing absolutely excellent work. I mean, obviously, Joanna Chambers' Enlightenment trilogy is magnificent. And I love Jordan Hawke's um, Widdershin's sort of American Victorian occult detective thing, which I think is absolutely terrific. And she does loads of research and it's really well grounded, as well as being in this alternate Lovecraftian universe. <laughs> but we, yeah, but, but there is there, there isn't nearly enough, and I agree. I'd love to see the big sweeping historical epics. Actually, there there is also an author called Tess Bowery who's just started writing about um, actors and musicians and actresses, and you know how they were sort of borderline prostitutes. And it's a very very um, 
sort of chewy and well-researched Regency world that she's got going there. Um, so I recommend those. They're nice. Oh, nice. I'll, I'll definitely check that out because the other two I've already ticked off on my list and I'm just sort of roving through the streets, shaking people down. Like, are you going to write historical? No, I know <laughs> me too. Totally. But yes, Tess Bowery and it's called Treading the Boards, the series. There's two so far. They're pretty sex heavy, but the history's terrific. Oh, that sounds like my brand is what that sounds like. <laughs> I like them. I am definitely behind those. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to um, tell you a little bit about um, <laughs> my hated segue. I was going to tell you a little bit about how the sort of progression in our households of reading KJ Charles went <laughs> because I had read um, I had read the Magpie books and I had read Think of England I and obviously I had not yet read Society of Gentlemen because this was before it came out but I had been sort of a pusher I'd been like you guys should read Think of England Daria and Austin you should read Think of England you should read it you should read it here's a link <laughs> like go buy it and um one night Daria just decided to read Think of England finally after my I guess months of pressure had finally paid off and she stayed up till three and she came out the next morning just like a mess like I finished Think of England and I was like yeah I know right <laughs> yeah daria and i are both in the category of people who should read far more than we do <laughs> and so i i knew what it would take for daria to get that into a book and then she just started reading like a magpie book a day i was like okay 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 and then new year's day i like staggered out of my room picked up think of england and then just sat down for like six hours and did not get up <laughs> until it was done oh fantastic yeah and then it be it it's it really spiraled it spiraled into um them reading the first two society of gentlemen books and me being like this is why you should listen to me <laughs> yeah <laughs> i love that feeling when you go i told you i told you <laughs> i'm going to hold it over their heads forevermore then when it became like you know we're having kj on the podcast <laughs> like <laughs> this is perfect we always do research on our guests but i don't think anyone's ever devoured <laughs> with quite as much relish to catch up <laughs> we're very very excited for the third society of gentlemen book i am restraining myself extremely hard from <laughs> just asking all about a gentleman's position I'm so excited. <laughs> well, you can ask, you can ask. I'm not giving you any spoilers, but uh, yes, it was uh, It was a big project, that. It was a really big project and uh, quite hard to, it was bigger than anything I had done, more sort of elaborately planned out from the beginning. So mm -hmm. yeah, I, I just hope Gentleman's position lives up really, because I was, I was pretty pleased with the way Seditious Affair has been received. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love the way, um, I mean, it, I think it's it's common-ish in romance to have that sort of series where you know all of the characters from the get-go, and then you sort of see them either pair off or you realize who they're with as you proceed through the series, always switching protagonists. But it's pulled off really, really well in this series in particular, I think, because there's such a good reason for that society to exist. And then you have sort of the overlap in the books where you you're learning about the relationships between the characters before you learn about the relationships between the characters. So I feel like everyone has been set up with 
in some way that makes me go by the end of the first book i'm like oh them in the second book <laughs> and then by the third book i'm just i'm just burning I'm like, <laughs> we're all on fire <laughs> the number of people who uh, who were completely blindsided by it being sick but who hadn't obviously gone and just read the blurb which was available uh-huh. um but I've, I've had so many people go oh my god what what is that what <laughs> which was exactly the effect i wanted so that was great <laughs> But no, that, that I mean that was huge fun to do. It was huge fun to actually have six plus the two from the other story. So in fact, I had basically eight characters that I knew really well from the beginning and could play with. And having got all eight of them in my head from the very start, I think it made it a really rewarding writing experience. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I don't what I don't like about trilogies can be you know when you feel that a couple are just coming in in order to set themselves up for the next book mm-hmm. and I, I i wanted to try very hard not to do it but also of course you know the the, the shape of the story just demanded it because one thing i thought is you know it's very difficult i think if you're writing a queer romance sort of series with different characters and all of them you 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 risk ending up with the kind of here's a small town or an fbi department where every single person is gay and then that seems a little bit impossible (laughs) yep and and, you know there's you want to write the series and you just they're they're all all you can just go balls to the wall and just do it (laughs) everyone is gay yeah well why not just go for it But yes, it, it made the. Uh, but actually, in some respects, I think I like I like having uh, restrictions. I like having a tight structure. I like saying, okay, this is what we're doing. Because once you've actually got made a decision, all the everything has to logically flow from there. Because the worst thing in the world is a blank page, and you could write absolutely anything. Mm-hmm. And the more I close down my options, the more the easier it is to write it. Oh man, that's true. But the other thing with it, of course, with what you're saying is um, the overlap between the stories, which was an absolute nightmare. <laughs> I can imagine it was it was exciting. It was actually very exciting to me because I I don't want to give anything away for for listeners who haven't read the books because they should immediately. <laughs> um, but I I there's there's an overlap between the first and second books, and I was reading going oh I actually really want to go back and revisit some of these scenes, but you know you don't revisit every scene. You don't just sort of jump back and start plotting for, at the same pace um, from that point. You, you... No, there's, there's a very big overlap uh, at one point because a, a thing that happens in book one turns out to be a pivotal relationship point in book two. So I had to have that overlap there. But yeah, it, it, I mean, it was it was very tricky to do and tricky to balance and not have people thinking, hang on, I've already read this scene. Why am I paying mm-hmm. to read this scene twice? <laughs> Um, and there's there's much less overlap with book three, which starts a little bit later. But um, yeah, I, I, I had Eon Timeline, which is a great piece. If you're writing and you're doing overlapping or any kind of complicated timeline work, it's this amazing timeline software and you have it all plotted out. And I had all the different story arcs and all of the characters and everything that happened literally going down to broken down by hours at some point. Oh my gosh. Going at once. And then my laptop got stolen. Oh, that's right. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh huh. That was. Uh, we came home and it was like we've been burgled, man. Bugger. And they take my laptop. And I'm like, oh, damn. Oh well. And then I was like, my timeline software gone. Oh. Uh, I mean, I, I was I was in tears. I'd only just I'd, I'd finished the first draft of the second book, and yeah, I had the third book all to do, and I had no way of checking. And it, it was, oh my goodness, back up your work is what I'm saying. Do you back it up to the clouds? <laughs> 
Oh, that's heartbreaking. It was horrific. It really was. That was so that was the single hardest thing about writing this book. And you know what? What they've got, they've got five quid for that laptop. I'm still so angry about <laughs> that. Yeah. If they manage to get into that, I'm just imagining them going through your files like. <laughs> That'll teach them. <laughs> like, what is this? <laughs> uh, I'm going to shift abruptly and ask you a burning question that is on my list of topics mm. um it is still related to research oh boy. and it is something that austin cares about deeply for a myriad of reasons <laughs> and it's how did you get the idea slash start the research for the nipple piercing and think of england <laughs> oh gosh um do you know what they did loads of body modification in the late victorian and edwardian periods loads and, and when i say they i mean um upper class people <laughs> uh, at this point when you're looking about the sort of 1870s to about 1915, you could pretty much expect tattoos and piercings to be either lower class or upper class. And uh, I mean, you know, the King of England was tattooed, yeah? Did not know that. You do now. Uh, you, oh my I mean, gosh. This is what, when I say upper class, this is what I'm talking about. Uh, basically, because being in the Navy was very much a thing that, you know, Britain, naval power. Um, you would go out there, you would have some kind of position, loads of people, uh, and of course going to India, and people got tattooed. Men got tattooed, women got tattooed. Winston Churchill's mother, who was an American heiress, had a snake tattoo going up her arm. Oh my gosh. So, yeah, I mean, this is the kind of, you know, we say tattoos now, and people have a very strong idea of, you know, what that means. But in fact, it, it, it was completely common for the Victorian and Edwardian upper classes to have body modifications. And they did have piercings as well. Um, it is unknown if Prince Albert actually had a Prince Albert, but it's not <laughs> outside the realm of possibility. Um, so yes, it was. It's it's it is completely unremarkable that Daniel should have that in Think of England. That delights me. Very pleasing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> is there a specific reference you use to research that, or did you just sort of pick up the information from a variety of sources? Well, you you can actually find it out. Um, that, they, there are online um, reproductions of a whole bunch of journals about this. I mean, people people would do it in um, sort of discursive, uh, descriptive magazine articles, and then you actually had specific tattooers actually writing articles about it. But if you, um, I could, I found some absolutely superb links on the tattoo website talking about the history that had some reproduction articles with. Um, news reports just sort of amusingly talking about what people had so there was one guy who was supposed to have an entire fox hunt done up his legs and back and wow. he was meant to be yeah exactly can you imagine <laughs> i mean that'd be really quite fun to do you know you'd have a horse going over your shoulder and have the fox disappearing somewhere interesting and be great <laughs> <laughs> but yeah there'd be, um so yes there's, there's actually loads of stuff in the um news and magazines at the time and loads of people have digitized them so actually a bit of delving online can take you to all kinds of wonderful places. You can even find pictures of Jenny Churchill, who was Winston Churchill's mum, where you can just see the snake on her arm. And you should also do that because, unbelievably, she was an absolute babe. I mean, she's outstandingly beautiful. And then you look at Winston Churchill and you think, what happened? <laughs> We're gonna blame his, uh, We're gonna blame his father's genetics for that. You could do that. <laughs> Let's see. We had another question. What that on the list was. Um... Are there time periods that you really want to write in that you haven't yet? And are there time periods that you don't want to write in? Ooh, I mean, the further back you go, the harder it is. I would never do medieval, um, in part because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very keen on 
the principle that, you know, my characters don't actually have to have lice and rotting teeth. But the further back you go, the harder it is to avoid lice and rotting teeth. <laughs> so I, 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 feel, I feel most comfortable in the Georgian. Actually, no, I'll tell you what I do want to write. I desperately want to write Restoration. You know, the period of the Earl of Rochester and this really sort of sex-driven, pleasure-driven, totally hedonistic, spoilt court of all these people who, you know, they've come back from exile, they've got hold of an entire country to play with. Everyone's been shaking off the misery of the Commonwealth and it was just party time for the rich. Um, and Rochester himself, who was this utter libertine, he was obviously bi, he wrote all kinds of absolutely obscene poetry and had it performed and was exiled from court and a <laughs> wonderfully fascinating man uh, and a magnificent poet as well. So, yeah, I, I really want to write Restoration at some point. There's a big, sordid book to be written. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds delightful. And yeah, I, I have, have, having been recently working on stuff and suddenly had l looked around at my characters and gone, oh God, how do they bathe? How often do they bathe? I feel that. <laughs> yeah, it's not, not nearly as often as you'd have hoped. And mm -hmm. then you've got, you know, the, 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 life was really a problem, but it's also for me, it's the diseases. And actually, there's, I've, I've, I've put some of this in the gentleman books because, you know, it, it, it's constantly bugs me yeah what would happen if you're dyslexic when there isn't even a word for dyslexic mm -hmm. yeah how do, you, how do you cope yeah you're very short-sighted um you get diseases yeah I, I i think about this a lot because you know my my first child was a, a flex breach presentation which is to say she had her knees to her chest and she was coming out of bumper and i had a cesarean section but i remember the obstetrician basically saying to me you know there's a probably a 60 percent chance that you and the child would both die in labor um, you know, very calmly because they were going to cut me open. That was fine. And just, <laughs> you know, when when someone says something back to you and you think like a hundred years ago, good night Vienna, mm -hmm. and, and so it sort of sticks in my mind the childbirth, the pox, obviously the pox. You know, really big issue. Um, so yeah, the, those those things do bug me as a sort of trying to be accurate historical novelist. Mm -hmm. And I know nobody wants them, but they 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 sit there and they niggle at me. Yeah. It's why I can't have any of my heroes smoke, because I just worry so much. You're like, oh, you don't even know what that's doing to your lungs. <laughs> I know! <laughs> you you won't for another 20, 30, 40 years. Exactly. I can't, I can't do this to him. It might be really bad for him in the long run. <laughs> Let us not forget that uh, through the 40s, actually I think it was through the 30s and 40s, they were using cigarettes to treat asthma. Oh, asthma my, my cigarettes. <laughs> Amazing, oh, oh, history. I know. Nightmares. Um, th that actually brings up a good point is, um, you know, you're sort of issuing the uh, smoking when it would probably be historically accurate that yes. they would smoke. Are there are there lines that you draw when it comes to conforming to historical accuracy? Is there a point where you say, you know what, I'm just going to wing this. I'm going to hand wave it. I'm going to write what I want. There are some, and I mean, some of the trivial, like smoking, for example, quite seriously, one of the reasons I also don't do smoking is because it's such a nightmare to choreograph. You know, if you've got lighting cigarettes and smoking cigarettes and putting cigarettes out and how long has he been smoking it in this conversation? And you can spend hours in copy edits for no benefit whatsoever. Hats <laughs> as well. I cannot abide it. Everyone should be wearing hats in all of my books. And, you know, the constant... Flipping, taking it off, putting it on. Have you left it behind? And it's just, you know, nobody cares. 
So I, <laughs> that, that is one of the things. I will mention a hat now and again and just hope that people take it as red because it's so terrible otherwise. I mean, for me, the thing that actually is tricky is, and I know everyone finds this tricky, is trying to convey historical attitudes without actually horrifying the modern audience in terms of racism, sexism, you know, anti-Semitism, homophobia, okay. you know, all the things that were so... I mean, uh, when Think of England came out, a number of people were disturbed by the racial, the language used towards uh, Daniel, who's a Portuguese Jew. And I, I actually dialed the anti-Semitism down to way below what you would find in any normal Edwardian novel, uh, way below. I mean, yeah, I put in as much as I could bear, which was very, very, very little. Um, and there's a couple of references to being described as a Dago, which, again, you know, I mean, that, that, would, that was completely unremarkable at that time. And I don't want to write that, those words, because they're horrible, awful things to write. And I really don't want to write them without a reason. But at the same time, you know, if you, if you just read some of the stuff from that period, it's jaw-dropping. So that's that's very definitely something. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not here to make people feel bad about themselves or feel you know, just horrified. And honestly, it's horrifying sometimes when you mm -hmm. read the, especially the pulp fiction of the period. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the, the equivalent here, um, I've wanted to write um, historical romance set in America. And the biggest problem with that is slavery. <laughs> it's hard to have like a meet cute when either um, they're abolitionists or they're not. <laughs> that's the thing. If you're not, well, that's the thing. And because it's implausible, you, you, obviously you want your hero to be an abolitionist, but, oh, well, I mean, this is one of the things I really struggled with, especially in Seditious Affairs, if, you know, trying to convey the mindset of a decent person who actually believes that women and working class people shouldn't have the vote or that actually most people shouldn't have the vote, that things are fine as they are, and that, that this is not a problem. I mean, you know, one of the characters actually explicitly doesn't agree that married women should own their own property. And, yeah, that's kind it is kind of horrifying. But And you just have to strike a balance between saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm writing about a, a, a time, a, a different and, frankly, less pleasant time. You, need, you don't want to repel modern readers, but I, I think you you end up with just people in silly hats if you give them completely modern <laughs> attitudes. Yeah, or you run the risk of um, a lot of the historical sort of harlequins I read growing up gave this very rose-colored glasses view of history that was a little gross. Um, I didn't it realize is. it at the time, but, you know, you're perpetrating some really nasty stuff if you're just like oh and then the plantation was lovely yeah and exactly. she had a maid it yeah. wasn't fine it wasn't okay and even if your slave owner was a really nice man he was still a slave owner and actually saying that the past was a nice place is is, is an insult to all the people who suffered because it really really wasn't and yes that, it, it is a massive challenge and I think American history in particular because obviously there was slavery uh, in Britain but in the British Isles themselves, it was very differently expressed, you know, while still obviously being a massive and grotesque moral wrong, but we didn't have the same sort of levels of physical abuse that you were getting on the American plantations. It just worked in a different way. 
Um, but I, yeah, so I really admire the, there are some absolutely amazing writers um, at the moment doing American historical romance and really confronting the slave history. Piper, I think you pronounce it hugely. She, she's got her um, Migrations to the Heart series, which I'm following with massive interest. And that's about set in sort of middle America after slavery has just been abolished. Really mm. good. I recommend them. I'm allowed to check that out. We are going to diligently take notes <laughs> and start reading everything that you recommend that we haven't already. Yeah, th- th- those, those ones are hit, I should say. They're, um, and, and, they're, and they're actually slight, they're, they're, they're on the inspiration. I think they're inspirational. I mean, she's obviously very Christian, but I mean, I just found them absolutely fascinating. And her research is you know, so strong and powerful. Um, and it's just a sidelight on the period of history that I know nothing about. So yeah, I recommend them greatly. I'll read pretty much anything if it taps my interest. And I grew up, um, I devoured het romance for years until I, you know, I was a young teenager and discovered like, oh, they they do this for me too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that actually kind of my initial question about uh, drawing the line with conforming to historical accuracy when you're writing and you have suggestions from your editor, is there a point where you'll push back like against the prescripted changes? Like if they're telling you to add less detail, more detail to not hand wave something, are you going to take a stand and say like, no, this is this is a very deliberate choice? I well, I, I come because I'm, I'm an editor myself. I've, I've did 20 mm-hmm. years um before the red pen kind of thing. So I'm simultaneously, I'm, I'm aware of how editors work. I'm aware they're not, you know, we're not, we're not godlike, much so I'd like to claim we are. <laughs> um, so I tend, yeah, you know, I, I will always seriously consider what an editor's saying. It may be that I'll say, well, I don't agree with your suggestion, but I agree that there's, you know, there's a hole here, this isn't quite working out. I, I, I would not, but yeah, I, I don't think anyone should be afraid to push back against an editor. Yeah, it's your book. It's the author's book. And the author's got to stick by her vision. And if you're being told to make massive changes, you've got to really just be absolutely sure that um, they're in the service of your book and your vision. Because it's not unknown that editors, a few, some editors will be pushing their vision of the book, which is not right. It should be the author's vision of the book. And the editor is just trying to make it the best that it can possibly be within the author's vision. So, yeah, but no, I'm, 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 I like to think I'm good at taking editorial direction, but I I, I tend to be quite decided on what I'm trying to do. I think that um, making the jump from editor to writer and doing both simultaneously, because if I'm not wrong, you still do freelance editing. I do, although um, I'm completely flat out at the moment with, uh, I've I've contracted so many books this year that I've actually had to be turning work down. But yeah, I have been uh, doing freelance as well. I'd left my job about a year and a half ago. So it's it's the writing and the editing now. Nice. Um, is the relationship between those two things hard to balance? Like, what was the what was the progression? Because I know, I mean, obviously, I think you've done both for a while, but I think a lot of people, myself included, have a hard time splitting our attention that way. I don't know. I think it's. I I, I quite like. I, I quite liked it when I had enough time to edit and you know just take time off and work on somebody else's manuscript and then go back to my own. I think that's there's there's a lot because it, it very much uses different parts of my brain. I mean I can feel that. So um, it was almost a bit of a lovely holiday to go through somebody else's manuscript and give them a hard time instead. 
Oh, we were going to ask you about bringing uh, queer romance to mainstream slash like big four publishers, um, because I know you're you're publishing with uh, Love Swept, uh, which is it's Random House, right? Yeah, Penguin Random. Random yeah. Penguin. Random Penguins. That's random what, Penguins. That's what ev- everyone was sure they should have called it Random Penguin. I'm really sorry they didn't. <laughs> Take our advice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not too late to rebrand. <laughs> that's what I think. Random Penguin is such a good logo as well you could have. <laughs> you could have a series of logos with increasingly random penguins. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I was just I was curious about that uh, sort of the mainstream move to sort of have queer romance makes me really happy. And I see seeing that from Penguin Random House. I, I was curious if did you write the Society of Gentlemen knowing that it would be uh, produced by a more mainstream publisher? Do you would you produce a work differently if it were? Um, I did know that because I I wrote the synopsis and gave it to my agent and she took it to various of the uh, bigger publishers. So it was bought by, I have the synopsis down, but it was bought by Love Sweat before I actually started writing the books. I don't think it made any difference to how I wrote it. Um, I think, I think basically, you know, it's obvious that, let's be brutally honest it's, there's money in queer romance and mm-hmm. when th- that is just publishers favorite thing so if if there's money to be made the, the big publishers are going to go for it as as we can see they are and it's just a matter of time you know they're, they're just exploring the market and seeing how much money they can make and hopefully it'll be loads and that'll be good for everyone <laughs> i'll be interested to find out if it turns into these uh bigger publishers having dedicated imprints or if they're going to I don't want to say shoehorn, but if they're going to just have it alongside their... They, they, have, they have it with Love Swept. They, had, they didn't put me in a separate in. It was very much, you know, just coming out with the other books, all of which were hit that month. And I think that's better, personally. I mean, I think, I think you've got to have things flagged. I think the sooner, you know, that gay or bi or whatever is the last point on the tag, you know, it should be romance, historical, regency, gay, rather than gay, romance, historical, regency. Agreed. So, yes, I, I, I don't think any of them are talking about, I'm not aware that anyone's talking about setting up a specific queer romance line as opposed to just selling within their imprints so that's that is a good thing because I, I don't like this shoehorning and this hiving off and this putting in a separate place you know you have to put physical books in a particular place but you don't have to do that with ebooks yeah you don't have to be so meticulous with the shelving well it's interesting to me because they have um well they that was so broad but a lot of um presses have dedicated imprints for like african-american fiction which is yes. another one of those things where i'm like really i mean it's a yeah, useful that's... tag but it's it shouldn't it's be tag, segregated not, yeah it should just be a tag it should be absolutely a thing you can look up and find african-american romance but absolutely not a thing that is only published within one particular line i'm, I'm i find that deeply disturbing to be honest yeah it perpetuates a, a an isolation and and it it just makes it more of a niche thing because you're not exposing a broader audience to it and in some ways normalizing it, like with queer romance. It, it says it's different. Why is it different? What is different? about? You know, in what way do you possibly need a separate imprint because of the color of the protagonist's skin? I've never heard anything so stupid in my life. It's, it's inexplicable. I mean, I'm coming at this as a Brit and we have different culture, background, history, everything. It, it's bewildering. 
frankly. I mean, it's one of the things where we kind of look over the pond and go, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> well, and I think to me, there's there's an excuse there for then not having, you know, your broader category be inclusive, because you're saying, ah, well, yes, we will put everyone else over here. And then uh, for some reason, all of our other books are about white people. Mm, yes. <laughs> it's a sort of way of saying, you know, we've got this separate category for whoever, which is how we justify everybody looking and sounding the same elsewhere. Yes. They can pat themselves on the back for having their imprint or whatever while still... Yeah, no, it's it's, it's not. I, I, I think it's... it's. I mean, I'm absolutely you tag everything as much as possible to help people search, but you, you sell it together. You know, you sell your romance together, you sell your historical romance together. But, I, yeah, ooh, no, gives me the creeps, to be honest. There was a push um, at Gay Romance Northwest. The organizer, Tracy Timmons Gray basically contacted Jeff at Amazon and said, hey, I get these, you know, these these newsletters, these emails about new releases and romance, and there's absolutely no queer romance in there. Is there a way to start combining the two? Is there, and we actually, um, through the push between Tracy and a lot of other GRNW people, we ended up having sort of more clarity in the tags on Amazon and getting a breakdown of subgenres instead of just the enormous, difficult to wrangle tag of just like gay and lesbian romance. It ended mm. up being broken down into subgenres. And I think really all it's going to take is just consistent pressure <laughs> from readers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, and, and I think that's definitely the way it's going. I mean, the market is just broadening out so much and, you know, the, the, with the, the bigger presses just bringing books out, I think there's going to be a lot of change in the next few years. I think there comes a point where you you have to, you know, as if you're Amazon, look at your your gay and lesbian romance tag and realize that there are 20,000 books in there that are not all the same. Because, of course, they've also lumped in bi romance and, and any romance with a trans character all into that one category. Well, as long as they see that they can make money by separating it out, then they'll do it. I mean, it's all going to be driven by money. But, yeah, so all, all we need to do is show them that that's where the money is and they'll be right on it. <laughs> we'll just make them a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've never believed that there's any shortage of, of audience for any any subcategory. And the more that readers can actually find the books they're looking for, the more the books will sell, Exactly, I think. Yes, yeah. I assume because <laughs> I, I I find there's way more of a problem with people not knowing that queer romance exists or not being able to find it or thinking that I, I, I think people either don't know exists or they're like, oh, it's it's cis gay MM contemporary. There's no historical or there's no urban fantasy or sci fi or what have you. There's shifter. <laughs> there definitely is <laughs> in great, great numbers. I'm. I'm looking at our list of questions and sort of shaking my head at my at myself. Um, we have this one may be spoilery, so you do not have to answer it. But we have to try. We have to try. <laughs> How many times? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this was the, we may have been a little tipsy when this question uh, went on the right, list. I'm right. Um, How many times did Cyprian bang Will and John? <laughs> Um, I don't have a specific number for that, but um, let's say 
probably there would definitely have been about half a dozen times probably a couple of years ago and by a couple of years ago I mean about 1817 because <laughs> that's how my brain works <laughs> is that is that in the was that in the Aeon timeline like jotted <laughs> down oddly enough that one wasn't do you know I have had so many people ask me if if they can see either that scene or the scene with Dominic um that is suggested in Seditious Affair <laughs> Everyone well, wants to see John getting it on. Add me to the list. Yeah, it was it, it was getting to the point. Um, I'm actually going through my messages with uh, Daria because where is it? Oh, here it is. Sorry, like half of this conversation is about. Yeah, we were me and me and Daria were um, on vacation in in January, and I was I was getting my plane reading on, of course, which. There was a lot of sex to be reading on an airplane. Um, <laughs> and and Dari was like, there's something you're going to really like. It's, you know, it's just something. Something's going to happen and you're going to be really happy. And I was like, okay, sure. But I don't know why I don't just believe them at this point. Because <laughs> they're always right. And then we're lying in our hotel room. And I got to that page. And I actually completely misread it at first. And then just happened to flip back to the page to check something else. And then went, <gasps> <laughs> you know what? I missed it entirely, and Daria had to tell me about it. And I'm literally, I'm sorry I'm going to do this to you right now, but I, I hope it will be entertaining. I am going to read you select snippets of this text conversation <laughs> between Daria and myself. She just sent me the most horrified expression. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to read you this, and I apologize ahead of time. She said, I keep remembering that C uh, Cyprian had a threesome with John and Will, and I'm burning. And I said, I cannot. And she says, I can't believe how much I love this character that is in like five scenes. And I said, I can't believe I missed it. <laughs> She's like, I'm glad I could show you the light. And then it, de it devolves. And then I said, the book better come out ASAP the night it's supposed to fucking release. And she said, I will not sleep. And then um, none of us are going to sleep. No, it's going to be we're going to have like a party. And then uh, Daria said all the references in that scene where he was arguing with Dom were like me stabbing myself. <laughs> and then we we talked about Richard, like you made your bad line at Richard. And <laughs> Daria said, I'm like, Cyprian could destroy your ass. He holds the power just like he'll hold your dick. <laughs> um, and then I said, uh, she said, I hope and I pray. And I said, we pray every day. And then this is the one. <laughs> I just looked over at Daria and she's dying. Um, me saying my prayers at night. Dear Lord. <laughs> Sorry. Please let Richard be a bottom bitch for Cyprian. <laughs> And I said, in the name, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, aka KJ Charles. <laughs> There's more, but I'm gonna stop there. Ah, no pressure for book three, then. Oh God. Oh, I, I, I have to say, I, I, I like, I, I like, I like Cyprian, but I, I, I just love how much Richard has pissed off everyone who's read this series today. <laughs> It's given me so much joy. <laughs> I absolutely, I love Richard, but at the same time, I'm just sort of shaking my head. Yes. Richard, you don't know. It was it was all the kink shaming that he did in, in yeah. World 2. It's like, oh, I know, Richard. I know, I know. Richard, you're gonna, you're gonna get your comeuppance soon. <laughs> but, you know, that's another one of the things that I... I just really wondered about when I was writing it, you know, obviously Dom's situation is someone who's got a whole bunch of desires he hasn't got a name for, mm -hmm. and Richard's got absolutely no framework as to how to handle it, and I don't think that everyone would have just gone, oh, well, you're my best friend, so I'm going to accept this, you know, 
to me really really weird and peculiar thing that you like he's like what the fuck is wrong with you mm-hmm. because what and although there was there was actually loads of flagellation was a huge thing in in georgian sex there's a fascinating book on this you'll be amazed to hear lascivious bodies and it's all about georgian sex and there's just a massive chapter on flagellation and other bdsm type activities so it was quite big but it was still it was not mainstream it was not something you'd have heard of so uh, i just thought if we put, we put just this quite stuffy person in the middle of the situation and see what happens yeah absolutely well i think it, it's so interesting to explore kink especially in a historical context because there's so much to to pull on from what is normal to people and what what is normal then that is not now and what is normal now that was not then i feel like you learn so much about the world and you learn so much about the characters from what they're rebelling against you know yeah we talked about this in our anatomy of a sex scene episode where we were discussing like one of the crucial elements of world building either in fantasy or in historical stuff is like the societal attitude towards sex and how that will influence your character's perception of themselves and what they do and how you can make really vanilla acts titillating if you set it in a in a place or a time where they're you know taboo exactly i mean forbidden is forbidden it doesn't matter what it is as long as it's forbidden kind of thing um and you know you can you can equally you can read some stuff that takes the most outray things for granted and it actually comes it comes to seem quite routine you know mm-hmm. if you're reading a really dsme series you can actually be sitting there thinking oh you know yawn yawn cock rings yawn <laughs> <laughs> it's, it is totally what you're used to isn't it and I, I i think that's um that's fun to play with because you know you don't otherwise you you, you can feel you're on a kind of escalator where everything you know, you've got to keep pushing things further and in fact what you need to do is keep pushing the characters further rather than the mm-hmm. sex acts or the characters and their intimacies might be very small things that have a massive impact yeah that actually ties in really well to another question i wanted to ask which is i i really like the way you plot stuff your plots are really really you know intricate it certainly sounds like you have a really intricate timeline for for your plots and I don't see that super, super often um, in romance where the those plots and the characters and the romance are all really tightly tied together. And so sort of how do you balance the character development, the relationship between two characters with these really intricate, um, sometimes mysterious, sometimes really suspenseful plots? Oh, gosh. Um, I wish I could. <laughs> they, they basically grow organically. So... In most of my books, I will actually start with the external plot, and then you basically go from there. You, I mean, basically, you've got, you've got to have your one main one, which is either the romance plot or the external plot, and then just weave the other one around and through so that they're interacting with one another. Because you shouldn't be able... I, I feel it, what doesn't work is if you can take out one plot strand and the other plot stands, stands without it, mm-hmm. then that doesn't work you know then you've just got an unnecessary plot strand so they've got to be balancing on each other and the thing that happens in the external one affects what's happening in the internal one and so on so it's a pretty organic process really of working out um so for example with the um in the seditious affair dominic and so they you know a lot of their relationship yeah it might just not have happened at all if they hadn't been under the amount of pressure they were Mm-hmm. Um, and it's almost like the very difficulties they're under was actually forcing them together as well as forcing them apart. 
So, um, yeah, so, but it's it, it's definitely a challenge, I think. But I think it's what makes for us, to my mind at least, it's what makes for a satisfying read, which is obviously why I want to do it. Mm-hmm. Plus, I've, I've, I find it quite hard, in fact, to write a complete romance novel that is very much just the romance. I just like there to be other things going on. Well, it's, and it's, there's so much source for relationship growth and tension in a good plot, whereas if it's just sort of, and they met for coffee for a third time. You absolutely can do it. I mean, I read, um, I'm probably shouldn't name the book because it's not out yet, but I read an absolutely magnificent um, book recently, the author who's a friend of mine, and that is, yeah, there's virtually no external plot in that. It really is just tracing the growth of the relationship. It was wonderful. I mean, I cried my eyes out by the end of it. It's absolutely fantastic. Uh-huh. But, um, you know, I, I, I would find that really, really hard to do, and you've really got to have the readers buying into the characters. And it... It's not boring if it's done magnificently well because you're mm-hmm. so invested. But, you know, doing things magnificently well is really hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you definitely have to be setting out to be like, I am going to to write this relationship with such depth and detail that people will sit here to find out, you know. Exactly, and they will just anything. care about the characters and want to see them together. And, and, and yeah, I, I just find it's, it's nice to have... Um, it's, it's also, I like seeing what characters do under pressure. You put someone in a really difficult situation. No, more difficult than that. No, even worse. <laughs> you what they do. Yeah, I'm usually, my editorial notes are like, escalate. <laughs> <laughs> well, my tendency is actually to be really nice to my characters, which is something that I know people who read me may struggle to believe. But if it was less to me, I would just have them wandering around having a really nice time. <laughs> I don't want to hurt people. But if it's going to be a satisfying book, you know, unfortunately, you can't have the first draft of Flight of Magpies, which had to be changed completely. But I sent it to um, Alexis Hall, who I work with, and he basically sent back and went, kind of like Stephen and Crane go shopping for towels. (laughs) (laughs) So it is. (laughs) I... (laughs) I love that visual, though. Yeah, I know. It's stuck in my mind as well. Just, you know, you, you go out to the supermarket and then... Have a happy couple that are picking out towels together. Yeah, like, okay, just, no, you're right. It's not the most compelling thing I've written. Yeah, do you discover how the magical tattoos work? Just coincidence over candlelit dinner. Exactly. It was all lovely. I dumped 30,000 words of that draft and started Oof. again. Yes, it hurts. Oh, um, you recently talked about uh, on Twitter because it was weirdly apropos to my own life. You are, I guess, writing something now or plotting something now, and you realize you had to basically ditch your one of your characters. Both. Oh. Both. I had. I, I'll tell you what it was. Okay, so I I submitted a synopsis. And it was accepted. It was a really detailed synopsis and totally worked out. It was about two pages, one of the most detailed ones I've written. And I was just like, you know, I'm going to be able to write this in two weeks. I'm just going to be like taking dictation. I'm just going to have to charge it down. Started writing it. And I think, yeah, it was so inert. I can't tell you. I got about 2,000 words down the first day and every one of them was agony. And I was just looking, thinking, I can't do this. I can't do this. And I went out to the pub with my best friend who doesn't write at all. And I was just saying, you know, it's awful. The characters don't work. The characters don't like each other. The characters aren't interested. And she went, well, why don't you sack them? I'm like, because they're the main characters of the book. And she went, I don't care. They're not doing their job. Sack them. <laughs> We've had, had quite a lot to drink at this point. She got quite exercised. <laughs> she's like, sack them. I want those out of here. They're not doing their job. Get them out. And then I actually went for a walk and I suddenly thought, you know what? Yeah, actually. So I, I, I sort of kept the main principles, but I sat the characters and recast the uh, the story. 
and um, I just finished the first draft. I mean, it stormed after that. But yeah, I've never had to do that before. It was a really extraordinary experience. It wasn't starting a new book. It was, yeah, it was a real piece of uh, structural engineering that was. Oh, yeah, I'm I'm facing, I'm staring down the barrel of that with a fantasy novel I've been kicking around the plot for. One of my main characters is perfect. I know everything about him. The other one, like, remained a mystery, and I couldn't figure out why I couldn't get it to work. I was like, I don't even know his name. I don't know much about him. <laughs> and then realized, like, maybe that's a sign. <laughs> like, do you even need him to exist? Yeah. I was like, he's completely indistinguishable from, like, a mop. I could do anything with this character. And then I had a brilliant idea, and I think I'm going to charge ahead with it. Uh, selfishly, I am going to ask, um, when are you planning? Because I saw on your Goodreads that you are planning a sequel to Think of England. Do you know when that will appear on your slate? Uh, do you know what? I'm So many people want it that I almost feel very daunted about doing it. Because if yeah. I do it and it's not good enough, it would be awful. You know, people are really fond of that book. I'm really fond of that book. I'm really proud of it. It's one of the sort of probably my two favourites of my work. And... I don't want to do a sequel and it's not right, you know. So I've got I've got about 16,000 words of it, um, which I have given someone to read and see if it works. But the, the short answer is I just don't know. It really depends on me being absolutely sure that I can do it right because it's not yeah. going to happen if I do it right. Um, and at the moment I don't have it, – it, it's not sort of screaming. This is the thing. First Think of England – absolutely demanded to be I wrote it while I couldn't write Flight of Magpies and it took about two months while you know just writing in the evenings it was just absolutely flew through um, and if I don't get that kind of must write absolutely telling itself feeling I've, I, it's just gonna have to wait until that I get that feeling basically yeah. mm -hmm. until that that like eureka moment and you can't help but write it yeah, I mean, I, 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 mean I, I like where I got to with it, but uh, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's tricky. I know people, I understand that people would be kind of disappointed if I don't do it, but I think they'd be more disappointed if I did it and it was crap, you know? Yeah, agreed. Well, I don't think it would be crap, but I, I understand that because I've definitely read sequels that were not as engaging as the first one and it sort of retroactively take because it's part of the reason why we want more is because you know we we put the book down and our minds just sort of take flight and we're like oh what's going to happen with those characters how does their you know happily for now or happily ever after really come to be and then sometimes when you get the reality of that it's like oh what i thought of was better yeah exactly um you know you've and you've bought into it and you've got the and, and then of course You've got to remember that if there's a romance sequel, there's going to have to be a lot of conflict and a lot of difficulty. And, you know, in some respects, you don't want to see that because you actually want to see your characters who've got to a good place. You know, you don't want to see them tortured further kind of thing. Yeah. That's why I stopped the Magpie series after three books, because I just felt anything I do after this is going to be you know, making obstacles for the sake of obstacles. And mm -hmm. that's not right. They've been hurt enough. <laughs> <laughs> They have been hurt enough. <laughs> they, 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 they sorted themselves out and I yeah. didn't want to sort of unsort. They felt sorted. They felt like, okay, after this, you know, they can pretty much manage on their own kind of thing. <laughs> you can set them out into the world freely. Exactly. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're sorted. So um, I, I know that, yeah, there are people who can do a magnificent job of keeping a series going over a much longer period, but I think I'd really have to plan that out in advance and know where I was going and to actually say, oh, it's going to be seven book and this is going to be the arc over seven books rather than, uh, you know, and that was not what I did with either the Magpies or Think of England. So, mm -hmm. 
I was actually curious about how you how you plot. Uh, you've, you've mentioned, you know, using the timeline and tools like that. Do you do you always have the plot like really, really tightly uh, kind of strung out? <laughs> no. no Now i'm I'm trying to move to synopsis before in part because now i've got an agent and she sells my stuff but no i've done a lot of making it up as i uh, i i basically after the flight of magpie's experience where as i said i had to junk thirty thousand words i decided that i really had to get a grip and not do that again because that's a lot of wasted time i i I sort of balance between plotting out i usually have a a reasonably well-conceived thing up to about the 50 percent mark and then there's a kind of three question marks and then profit <laughs> you know <laughs> I, I i quite often don't know in in a queer trade which is the um short story i did for a, an anthology which i've now released on its own and there's a big plot twist in there which i have not planned at all when i was writing it I and mean, that just came out of absolutely nowhere i wasn't quite sure what was going to happen in the scene and this massive plot twist happened more or less writing itself out of my fingers in a slightly scary manner um, but I, I had absolutely no idea that that was going to happen. So I, I think there's, there needs to be space for your subconscious to get to work. So I don't like to have everything too heavily nailed down. I have a very, uh, my, my, I rely on my subconscious a great deal, actually, when it comes to plotting. And I find that you have to, I have to have both done the research and got quite a lot of the writing down and you know, really know the characters in order for my subconscious to get its teeth into things. Yeah, I'm, I'm very, very similar in writing. I have a, a hard time wrapping my head around something until I've at least started writing it. Otherwise, I find it, it it just gets very intellectual. It's like, oh, yes, absolutely, I'll write that book. And then you find yourself in the position that I was, and it's like, oh, well, I've got this wonderful structure, but it's completely dead. You mm-hmm. know, it's just lying there, and there is absolutely no way to breathe life into it. Whereas mm-hmm. if I'd actually started by sort of getting the characters really properly alive, I wouldn't have had that problem. And the book only started working when I went off and actually got the characters and uh, realized who they were. Yeah, I, I find I generally I don't know characters until I've at least started to to dive into writing them because it, it's sort of the same thing. I'll I'll say like, oh, I know exactly who this person is. And then they also are a dead husk. <laughs> I, I, I think very often it's because you're you know exactly what they're going to do, which is not the same thing as knowing who they are. And, you know, and if you if you start with a plot, that's that is the danger that, you know, you know, the actions are going to go through. But and you might even think, you know, why? But, yeah, that's not the same as knowing who they are. And it's not the same as actually seeing them just wandering around their office, messing about and arguing with people or what have you. You get you, you, you just need to get a little bit of a, a little bit further into it, I think, for me anyway. I, I know there are others who can just plot the synopsis and just go off there. But uh, it's I don't think it's ever a skill I'm going to have. <laughs> Those people are very powerful. <laughs> Swine. <laughs> I think um, we're close to wrapping up, but I have a question for you going back to the idea of being an editor and a writer. I've talked at length in, in earlier podcasts about my propensity to self-edit as I write, which is a horrible habit that I encourage no one to do. That's my like seventh. I do it all the time. Oh, that that's kind of my question. Like, are there things that, because I, I feel like we all know, you know, oh, I'm, I have a tendency to do this, so I'll look out for it and I'll, you know, sort of make a note to go back and flesh something out or whatever. But how much of your time do you spend wrangling with your impulse to self-edit? I, I don't wrangle, I self-edit. Um, <laughs> I 
Well, the thing is, I, I, you know, there are some people who like to say, oh, I do three drafts. I don't do three drafts. I get to the end and I, I will often just loop back over and over and over. And it's more of a spiral than a straight line. But that actually means that my drafts tend to be extremely clean by the time that I get to the end of them. And, you know, I find in a lot, you know, you're fine tuning, you're tinkering as you go along. You're just tuning up and getting that 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 note just right for that character. Actually, if you just lift that scene a little bit and sharpen that there. And that really allows me to just fine tune the character as I go. So I don't think it's a bad habit at all. I mean, I think it's a bad habit if you write two pages and then spend a week editing them. That's obviously not good. You've got to be getting the new material out. But I, I think if you're if you're the person who, who likes to go over and rewrite and just sort out... Yeah, not not changing everything. If you're changing everything, that's a different issue. But if you're if you're just if you're just sorting yourself out as you go along, I don't see that's a problem. I think that it's a it's a delicate balance between the two because I tend to err more on the side of less output, more tinkering. Um, and Austin is a writer who we've discussed this before. Like his drafts, his first drafts are garbage just to get the <laughs> skeleton on the page. Um, and the idea of that is horrifying to me. <laughs> See, I, I, yeah, I, I also would really struggle with that. And in part, it's because when, I, when I'm banging it down, it often goes wrong. And I, you know, if, if I stick, I will stop and go back and just see, see what's... And I, I would basically just waste a lot of time writing stuff that I was never going to use if I was just mm -hmm. banging it down. I, I really think it's just one of those things that you've just got to be the writer that you are. I mean, you've, obviously, you've got to get new words on the page. You've got to say, okay, fine. I mean, uh, uh, who was it? Lawrence Block, I think. And this is a while ago because he was writing on a typewriter but he said what he used to do was retype the last page of whatever he'd done the day before and so basically just tinkering that but it just puts you back into the book and allows you to start moving forward again so it, um so effectively you know he wouldn't be re-editing the whole thing but he would be just looping back into it and just immersing himself in his own words and that would allow him to go forward. It saves you from rereading, you know, what you have to a point. Because I I think people sometimes fall into that tra trap too of like, I have to be immersed in my story. And it's like, you can actually just go back a couple of pages mm. and find, find your footing. I mean, not always, but generally speaking. Mm. Yeah, I as a writer, I tend to write until I learn the characters, but without editing. And usually that, that's just a process of me getting to a certain point, scrapping everything that came before and starting over. But I'm like, ah, but now I know what I'm, I'm doing. Well, you're also fast. Like, that's the thing is you came into the kitchen and you were like, I realized that my entire, you know, setting <laughs> timeline for the, for the beginning of this book, which is like the entire book at that point <laughs> is wrong. And I'm going to start over and, uh, now I know who the characters are and I know what I should have been doing that whole time. And I'm like, that's a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, it's a nightmare for me as well. I mean, I'm not a fast typist and I'm not particularly, I mean, I mean three to 4,000 words a day is you know, great for me. And I've, I, yeah, I, I couldn't do that. It horrifies me, basically. <laughs> so I want to know where I stand and just editing myself as I go along is quite a good way to do that. And I find, you know, as again, speaking as an editor, I find that the devil really is in the detail when it comes to, you know, the, the, there, are, there are times when just changing one particular scene and adding a paragraph here or whatever can alter everything that comes after it. You know, even small details can just sort of sing through and inform your characterization. So, yeah, for me, it's uh, uh, I, I want to reach the end of the first draft and it's 
assume that we're pretty close to finished, basically. Yeah, I'm the same way. And then, I mean, I'm fine with going back and sort of exhaustively fixing things, but I need to have that first draft be as close to close to good as I can get it. Well, exactly. And what I'm doing at the moment with this one that sort of started terribly and then I got the new characters and so on. And so the first few chapters are really shaky, but I'm now going back and re-editing. And, yeah, they're, they're not as bad as I thought. And it's amazing how much of where I ended up with it was actually in there at the start and just needs sort of bringing out a bit. I thought I was going to have to rewrite the first three chapters, but in fact, it seems that my subconscious had quite a lot of that under control, which is nice of it. I'm glad. Yeah. <laughs> it did you a favor or two. Yeah, well, it owes me. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for joining us on The Hopeless Romantic, and thank you so much to KJ Charles for coming on the show and telling us all those exciting things about research and everything. Thank that you for was, having me. That was one of my better outros. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm not judging you at all for whatever that was. <laughs> it's it's very early here. Um, yeah, <laughs> um, if you'd like to continue the conversation on social media, we would love to have you. Um, I'm on Twitter at Austin Chanted. I'm on Twitter at, at Amanda H. Jean. I'm on Twitter at KJ underscore Charles. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This episode of The Hopeless Romantic was produced by Dario DeFore with graphics by Keezy Young and music composed by Carly Ann Warden. Follow us on Twitter at VHR Podcast, add us on Facebook, and please rate and review on iTunes if you enjoyed.